And it started very simply. Could we just take human livers, keep them alive for several days on a machine and, uh, and just study them and perturb them and really use them as a far better model? Um, but realize very quickly that, you know, combine this with machine learning, combine this with the kind of target discovery we're doing with, for example, single cell sequencing, spatial sequencing, you can actually achieve the scale you want to focus in very quickly on the biology that's important. The Tomorrow Scale podcast is a series of conversations with the scientists and entrepreneurs who are building the future. We explore cutting-edge technologies with huge potential and go deep to understand how these founders and inventors must chart entirely new territory to bring their technology to market. We have discussions on a wide range of scientific frontiers, from life sciences to AI, nanotech and materials, to the very food we eat. And we'll talk about impacts, time horizons, and what's coming next. We'll learn, quite literally, how science fiction becomes reality. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. Let's meet our guests. So I'm, I'm Jack. I'm one of the, the co-founder and CEO of OcaBio. We're a deep phenotyping company developing RNA therapeutics for chronic liver disease, top 10 global killer, big underserved medical need. We, we use a lot of genomics and we've built one of the largest genomic atlases of the human liver and use it to uncover a host of novel targets that we then validate directly in discarded donor organs get conviction that whatever we go into clinic with will ultimately improve lives and are initially focused in the transplant space, but we'll move beyond that into larger indications. And my background, just in brief, is I was originally a tissue engineering guy, biomedical engineer, worked a lot on tendon, tendon injury, but very quickly realized I was a lot more enamored with all of the messy, hairy problems involved in taking new healthcare innovation from inception through to the, the market and, and to the patient impact. So worked for a number of years, primarily in the US, worked with early stage companies, always in the healthcare space, um, and then ultimately fell into a, a group called Avexis, which was one of the first gene therapy products to get to uh, mm-hmm. regulatory approval and help get them that over the finish line and ultimately onto commercial launch and just fell totally in love with advanced mm-hmm. therapeutics and the incredible leverage and ability to that they have to improve lives and came back to the across the water to Europe and met Quinn and heard all about what he was doing in the liver and very quickly realized the liver was where I should be spending all my energy and focus and uh, I fell in love with, with the liver. And anyway, that, that's me in a nutshell. And that's one of the things I love about your founding story is you guys did not, you're not classmates from since, you know, lower school. This is, um, you guys found each other uh, later in life. Quinn, what were you doing when, um, when you all met? Yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> tell us about your research. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you what exactly I was doing when we first met. Even better. I was even better. Back from uh, working on a treehouse in Costa Rica and Jack was in uh, an airport in Tanzania after building huts. So um uh, that was, believe it or not, our very first meeting. So you bonded uh, over tree houses. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, far more science to that than you think, um, but definitely uh, learned very quickly that we both have very similar values in terms of where science should go in the space. And I somehow managed to convince Jack that the best organ to do that in is liver. Lofty professional, scientific, and residential goals. Okay. <laughs> you know, Justin, my my background is I'm a um I, I come from the dark side. I'm a medical doctor engineer. And so of course had my particular worldview on liver. Liver was always my thing and always has been my thing. Um uh, but like a lot of us in the genetic space with the human genome project, I uh, decided to just dedicate my life to sort of big genomics. But rather than sort of big population genomics that you hear a lot about these days, for me it is more functional genomics. So you hear about all these new ultra high resolution tissue genomic technologies like single cell sequencing, spatial sequencing, and building machine learning models around that data. That's exactly uh, what I do and been doing for many, many years. And, you know, it's to help people understand why that's important is, you know, I think many of us understand now why genetics is important in drug discovery. You know, it it helps add causality, uh, you know, really just helps hone you in on the right biology. Because if you see a mutation associated with a disease and it's within or right next to a gene, it immediately pegs that gene as a target 
to that disease. The problem, though, and this is a big problem in all chronic diseases, whether it's neurodegeneration or liver degeneration, because that's, in effect, what we're doing, um, is it just doesn't answer the basic questions that you need. It doesn't tell you what cell type that gene is active in or if it's even active in the liver. It doesn't tell you at what stage in the 20 to 30-year disease process is it relevant. Um, and very often, uh, more often than many people can admit, it doesn't even tell you what biology it is that it's tweaking so that you can understand what it is you're trying to drive. And so, you know, what we do with these kind of genomic technologies is really dissect out at a tissue level, build a tissue model of what's going on about how cells and genes talk to each other and sort of how that changes with disease. But that's such a difficult problem to do that at scale, even on the kind of single liver level on a single sample level because you're you're breaking up these tissues and you've de developed some technology back in your um in your lab days uh, polaris the the kind of automated liver sampling and and and, and tissue mm -hmm. culture can you talk a little bit about how it's not just the kind of the software and the wetware you you've really got to kind of get the the hardware down too yeah no I, I for me this is one of my favorite topics on on how do you achieve scale right you hear a lot about biology at scale these days particularly coming out of the ai machine learning uh contingent of our sort of scientific uh, partners and um for me there are many elements to this because one it's not just about big robotics you know it's about miniaturization and as as one sort of tack on this um and a lot of what i did like with the polaris and various technologies is really focusing on miniaturization uh and that is incredibly powerful if you think for example uh, as i've mentioned before we can now very soon and i say we i mean the single cell community will be able to sequence up to uh, you know a million cells in a single experiment and, and that is done on a you know well at least the process is done on a machine no bigger than a toaster that is that is massively different to what we could do even a couple of years back and it's that miniaturization that i adore i think for me one of the biggest challenges still is is how do you capture how do you not compromise on complexity and that is the thing that is bedeviling I would argue all chronic diseases right now, uh, and of course for us particularly liver, because you know this path to cirrhosis, which is where a lot of chronic liver disease ends up, involves so many different cell types talking to each other, playing out, um, you know, and just running very very simple cell assays in labs. Even if you're massively automating, even if you're using big machine learning, even if you're doing big screens, you lose that complexity, and so it's garbage in, garbage out. And so for us as a company, a lot of what we're thinking about is how to find that balance. Use machine learning and technologies to give us the scale, but not compromise on the complexity. So let's, I'd love to dig into the, the path of, of, a, of a sample, but let's start off with kind of your, your medium of choice. Where do you obtain and why do you obtain the livers in the way that you do? I suppose <laughs> this is a story that goes back many years, right? Because I've been yeah, I've been developing in vitro liver models and trying to understand how to model liver biology in the lab for for many many years, uh, both in sort of biotechs that I've started up and and for uh, big pharma where I've sort of helped out with many target discovery projects. And I think this we we the the wall we kept hitting with both in vitro models and stem cell models. Believe it or not, I, I understand how Vogue stem cell models are, and, and we love them. Uh, and I can see a very different role for them in certain organ systems. Um, but the big problem is even with stem cells, they just fail to capture the complexity of what's going on, frankly, in an old liver. Because a lot of what we're trying to understand happens from middle age onwards. Mm. And using new young stem cells uh, or, or liver cells that behave like a, a newborn's liver really just misses the boat. And so rethinking that and how do we get around that is what took took me on this path to just perfusing whole human livers and sort of this path with Jack. You know, and it started very simply, can we just take human livers, keep them alive for several days on a machine and uh, and just study them and perturb them and really use them as a far better model. Um, but realize very quickly that, you know, combine this with machine learning, combine this with the kind of target discovery we're doing with, for example, single cell sequencing, spatial sequencing, you can actually achieve the scale you want to focus in very quickly on the biology that's important. And maybe just to comment on your question about where and how do we, we get them, uh, I guess the short answer is with the, a lot of difficulty and a lot of logistical 
logistical logistical complexity. But um, but yeah, we part, we're partnering now with a, we've got five transplant partners around North America and Europe who, who work closely with us and we're very appreciative of. And we'll be scaling that up increasingly to work closely with um, transplant colleagues to, to do the type of work that we do. There's a, a need created by this differential between the number of transplant livers that are obtained in the market every year and the number of actual usable, actual transplanted livers. So you are essentially capitalizing, so to speak, on on that differential. How, as you said, it's very hard to get them, but the need's growing. That's kind of what I'm wanting to get to. The, from everything that I've read, it's a it's a huge problem. Can you articulate a bit a bit more about the 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 problem that creates the the source of your livers? Maybe just to give you a sense of of the transplant space at uh, kind of a high level before I kind of dive in is over if despite improvements in technology and transplant medicine over the last couple of decades, donor organ quality has been continually getting worse and and it's largely a result of increasing phenomenons like obesity, like fatty liver disease that are driving down the quality of donor organs. And we're just living longer and living healthier, and thankfully less people are are getting hit by buses and stuff i shouldn't i shouldn't joke but yeah. but um but thankfully there we are living longer and healthier as a species and as a result the the donor organ quality has been uh, has been declining so with that context in mind we the goal for our initial program is essentially to improve the use of these marginal donor livers improve the outcomes for patients who do increasingly now receive marginal donor livers uh, in the transplant process because of the shortage of available organs and because there is such a high unmet medical need for patients on the waiting list as a result of uh, no available treatments for chronic liver disease uh, at all, really, which is really, so in some respects, we're, we're trying to address both sides of that coin by working with transplant surgeons to develop treatments to improve the use of donor organs, but also learning from that process on a journey and setting us on a journey towards ultimately ho- helping to prevent the need for transplants by treating a lot of the, 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 the diseases that ultimately result in, in liver transplant. But by being able to obtain these, you have to you have to keep them alive. You have to perfuse these um, organs. You, you couldn't do that previously. Why is now the right time to do this? Mm. Well, I'll start from a technology point of view, and then I'll I'll hand over to Jack. But as as with all, as I think is almost the universal case with with big changes, it's the convergence of the right technologies at the right time. You know, it's um, it's these perfusion devices to keep organs alive. It's the ultra high resolution sequencing technologies that are barely a few years old and are still evolving very quickly. Uh, and it's the computation to support it. You know, these, you know, none of this would have been possible just a couple of years ago. So once you've identified a potential new target to result in a change uh, to a healthier uh, phenotype in the liver, how do you take these um, uh, siRNA constructs uh, and then how does that translate into into a drug in the long term? How does the ochre bio discovery process from target identification to kind of lead identification differ from your traditional drug discovery process? Mm. You know, it's well, let, let's just start off uh, quickly describing why RNA therapeutics are so attractive and then we'll get into the specifics of what we do. But, you know, what a lot of how we thought about things as a company is about, you know, again, capturing complexity, but being able to do it fast and at the correct scale. And, uh, you know, RNA is just a thing of its time now. You know, we can do several things that we love about it. One is we can move very quickly from target to lead uh you know and the world has realized that with rna vaccines it is a much different game to small molecule discovery being able to do this very quickly with many targets and iterate uh through the biology is uh incredibly empowering the other thing is this long duration of effect and this is something people don't fully appreciate uh, with, with with inhibitory rna technology that we use versus mrna which uh, people are familiar with from the vaccines, is we can induce that gene gene suppression for six months at a time. And that allows us from a clinical trial point of view to treat livers outside of the human body, uh, but then look for long-term changes in effect. So that is very different and we love that. The other thing that I particularly am crazy about uh, and we're thinking a lot about in terms of our R&D is how to very specifically target cells. You know, So these Galnick sRNAs are hugely specific to hepatocytes, a particular type of cell mm-hmm. in the liver. 
Uh, and you know, the, the, this kind of modality works very well in, ter- in terms of targeting other cell types if you have the correct ligand. So it's, it's all of those put together with being able to go directly to testing in human livers. That sort of really is, uh, we hope, turning into a magic formula. And by leveraging these different technologies and taking that across, uh, I think it was a thousand livers, you identified a number of phenotypes and you do that both um, genomically, visually, to kind of spatial genomics. How, how fruitful has that been? How many phenotypes did you discover through those kind of thousand livers? <laughs> a lot. Uh, it's, how, <laughs> it's how many are clinically relevant. <laughs> Good point. I mean, the joy of genomics, right, is you see everything. <laughs> um, and uh, you have you have to, uh, it's an exercise in self-control sometimes, I think. Um, yeah, I, I think you, you explained it very nicely. For us, we divide things up into primary, secondary, and tertiary endpoints, phenotypes that, that we look at. And, you know, and the, the primary phenotypes have to be the same primary phenotype that the regulators are interested in that people talk about, you know, the, the very human interpretable things. And those are basically how much fat we can see in the tissue, how much degeneration we see in the tissue, how much inflammation we see in the tissue, and how much fibrosis we see in the tissue. You know, these are well-established. Uh, you can debate how much weighting you should give to various elements of it, but that is what the FDA looks for. That's what a lot of people in the NASH space, for example, this this type of disease that we're chasing, are particularly interested in. So one level down is I like to think of as more functional endpoints we look at, and, you know, a lot of these are well established, so things like circulating liver enzymes. But now we're starting to tread into territory of being a little bit more exploratory. So, for example, doing proteomic workups and circulating proteins, um, metabolomic workups to see how we can further stratify what we're seeing in terms of how secondary maps to primary. And then for us, you know, the the tertiary phenotypes are really sort of the big genomics that we do on the tissues. Uh, And that really allows us to do two things. One, it allows us to infer biology. That's just, there are no assays to measure. You know, certain things you just, (laughs) there is no easy way to measure it. Uh, You've just got to sequence things and look at the pathway activities and that will tell you what's going on in those cells. So it's useful for that. But then it's also really useful for, again, substratifying and seeing. And we do see substratifications I mean, and, and that's that's partly the beauty and the frustration of all of this even at a thousand liver level but right now for this field we haven't even solved the basic stratifications yet and in those basic stratifications are men and women react very differently we know uh, it, your your sort of ethnic background makes a big difference in terms of disease progression. and so for us what we're still trying to understand is just even those basics. Are we getting enough livers from different ethnicities to be very sure the biology that we're chasing is relevant to as many patients as possible? What's the limit to scale? Is it the acquisition of the is it the acquisition of the livers? Is is it the lab scale for the perfusion reactors? Is it um, you know just enough scientists to go after the the different targets you have or recruiting data scientists? Where are the limitations uh, for you to to go after all the things you want to go after? Uh, I think, Jack, you want to jump in on this well, one? I was going to say, yeah, I guess I, I think it's kind of in reverse order of what you said. I think fundamentally... It's, <laughs> so everything it's you access, said, but backwards, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's access to, to liver tissue. I mean, we, we, we joke internally a little bit uh, um, and analogize to another South African entrepreneur uh, who talked... <laughs> who. Uh, <laughs> who talked a lot about the lithium problem as they were starting a Tesla and being able to get access to enough lithium to really scale what they were working on. And for us, a little bit, it's about getting access to as much liver tissue such that we can use our technology to uncover better biology and ultimately get to better therapeutics for for patients. So for us, that is the number one challenge and why we've been so active and so busy um, working with different centers and and really scaling up our our, our transplant partnerships and programs. The second thing, though, which I wouldn't have said before, is the device. I mean, the oxygenators were all re- repurposed for the per- for COVID, which is key okay. to the use of the kits that we do. So we have have had some supply issues there, but they are being resolved now, so less of a problem. And then uh, recruiting great talent is always a a challenge, but it, I don't think it, it's much different for any other company. But we're very focused right now on on recruitment of of great scientific talent. So shout out, I guess, or what's that word? Plug for for Okra Bio. If anyone listening, we'd love to talk to you. Please do reach out um, yeah. and uh, get involved. Yes. One rock star scientist, please come work with us. Can we dig into the the depth of the phenotypics? I want to talk about translating 
unsupervised findings into validated targets and endpoints in the clinic for patients. Uh, absolutely. I, I think it, one, Jack, you can fill in. I, I, you know, I'm just going to refer back to what I said about primary, secondary, and tertiary phenotypes. You know, the clinical trial will be around primary and secondary phenotypes. You know, that is what the regulator is looking for. So they want to see biopsies of livers and what has changed in terms of, you know, fat inflammation, degeneration. In other words, cells dying, uh, fibrosis. Uh, and they will accept a very limited spectrum of surrogate biomarkers. For example, liver enzymes in the first week post-transplant are generally accepted to be quite indicative of how well that organ will do uh, in the short term and the medium term. So it's you know that 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 remains our ground truth. We have all of these technologies and we love all of these technologies. But unless we're speaking to the ground truth that we that others perceive to be the absolute, uh, you know, there's no progression clinically. In, in looking for that ground truth, what are some good examples of either hunches that you had confirmed or just, uh, you alluded to this a little, but just things that were just really head scratching? Yeah, you know, again, this is I, this is one of the things I really, really love about the genomic space is, uh, you know, you go into these projects and of course you have your favorite ideas um, and you see some of your favorite ideas validated and you immediately forget about the ones that weren't um, because, of course, you think you're fantastic. Uh, and then, of course, there are lots of things that just come out of left field that you don't know about. And, and we, we get all of that. You know, when we're when we're mapping genes and targets to these phenotypes, to these endpoints, we see things that other people have seen. So that's, of course, really comforting. We see things that we've suspected. And, you know, for a long time as a company, we've suspected that uh, the genes around degeneration, the biology around degeneration is one of those endpoints, is so important and so overlooked. Um, and we've seen a lot of that. And some of our best leads going into perfused livers right now are really around that theme. And then, you know, we see things where, uh, you know, if you do a little bit of research and you study the biology and, you know, you can you can create a just so story about what you think the biology is. And that kind of makes sense. And you test it out in the lab and it pans out. And then, of course, also occasionally you get things where it's like you have no idea what <laughs> the connection is. Now, that's both satisfying and petrifying at the same time, because then you're going going into, you know, there be dragons. Um, but well, this is the game we play. So let's talk about that strategy. When did you arrive at this kind of three-legged stool of kind of the 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 rapid validation, the kind of the breadth of the, the perfusion uh, or the, the deep phenotypics uh, platform, uh, and then the strategy of the perfusion on the livers. Did you have that at inception or was that something that really kind of came about through the founding and, and the creation in the early days post-founding? Oh, I'll let Jack speak to this one. Yeah, I think so people always ask me, oh, tell me about all the pivots that you've made since starting. And I kind of look at them like, I wish I had better stories for you. But because but, a lot of this was really a part of the founding thesis behind the company is that mm -hmm. great innovation happens at the intersection of new and exciting technology. And that we really are a, a case study for that. Both the common, as you alluded to, the combination of very advanced, rapid ability to sequence, all of, taking advantage of new sequencing technologies, the use of these Galnac siRNA modalities, which is a really just become clinically proven and having tremendous effect uh, for patients now on a commercial scale. And then these perfusion devices to get to better therapeutics faster and get to better validation and really paving a way or a new um, paradigm for preclinical development. So we, we really sit at the intersection of each of those, and they really em empowered the company to, into a, into existence in a way. <laughs> I think um, the the founding story was Quinn had been doing a lot of the the technology development work for Novo originally, and on, on the target discovery side. But it was when we realized we could really go to clinic as a therapeutics company in transplant using siRNA, and that was what made it a, a spin-off. That's why it made it such an exciting opportunity to to commercialize and start a, a whole new company around this idea, which ultimately will pivot and ultimately will end up in places we didn't we didn't envision initially but it was a great kind of base to build a company around and to begin to build the um the foundations yeah let's talk a little bit more about that how that differs from a development standpoint for for ochre bio in terms of developing drugs for perfusion transplant explants and then down the line 
actually straight into patients. How does that kind of stepwise approach kind of change the development and change the economics, change the opportunity? Yeah, I'm absolutely happy to jump in there. From a regulatory point of view, we very much want to be treated from a get-go as a therapeutic uh, therapeutics company. Uh, so there are, because we're working in transplant, there are unusual regulatory kinks to the space, but we've been very adamant from the beginning. We, we are developing therapeutics and want to go down a, a, an IND route ultimately uh, to get towards, towards clinical trial. So that is very much the case. The only difference for us is that because these therapeutics are non are delivered to an organ outside the body, number one, that means from our, we will likely be regulated by CBER rather than CDER, mm-hmm. which is unusual for an siRNA as it's kind of a synthetic oligonucleotide. Mm-hmm. But secondarily, we likely have a different preclinical workups to the systemic dosing of the likes of Inclizarin or other um, commercial siRNA products because we these are these organic siRNAs are, are sucked up by the liver very quickly ex vivo and we'll be ensuring and doing the research now to ensure that they are non-systemic by the time the liver is put back into the patient. So that changes and slightly ex- speeds up our preclinical development program. Uh, and then ultimately allows us to generate, generate data on a therapeutic product in a transplant setting that we believe could have broader applicability to chronic liver diseases thereafter. So our primary endpoint in transplant is the improvement of, of graft function. So the improvement of EAD, which is a measure of how grafts perform post-transplant, measured using peak liver enzymes one week after transplant. So a very short endpoint that we can use to demonstrate efficacy of our therapeutic, but more Broadly, we'll be following these patients for six plus months to assess recurrence rates of fatty liver disease, which is a big challenge down the transplant space, and, and broader cardiometabolic effects of the therapeutic as they play out for six months after transplant. And that data is data we can then take to the regulator uh, to and to the capital markets to show that the therapeutics we've been developing uh, for this orphan indication of transplant could have a lot broader applicability to potentially NASH patients, potentially broader cardiometabolic disease, which we think is an exciting, tractable problem for us to take on as a small company that ultimately allows us to, in a stepwise fashion, uh, begin to address much larger uh, indications thereafter. And then how much modification, uh, reformulation, uh, adaptation to uh, human administration, whatever administration route you choose, uh, how much more development work is there after with the Galenac SIRNAs? So because we've been from the get-go very much thinking of ourselves as a chronic liver disease company, that's we really want to take on these, this massive, challenging uh, space that affects so many patients. We are using Galnac for the purposes of systemic administration. We're designing the therapeutic compound such that it could be used systemically or ex vivo. Gotcha. Uh, the, the alternative will be to just use a naked siRNA. If it's just being delivered straight to the organ, you wouldn't have to worry about delivery as much. So we put a Galnac and do the optimization that we do such that the this could be a systemic therapeutic. So there is no modification, you go straight through. That's the that's the theory, yes. So how do you determine which of these different phenotypes that you've identified uh, and targets that you've uh, validated, how do you determine which ones to go after internally and which ones do you deter- and how do you determine which ones to go after with a partner? Oh, Jack, you start. <clears throat> so we're having lots of internal debates about this as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. This is a big uh, a, a very um, important part of our, our strategy, a lot, as, as it is for all early stage companies with this sort of business is sort of what, what people like to call now platform element to our discovery process and such that we've developed a lot of data around liver and have a lot of interesting insights into, into target biology. To date, we, we've been very focused because we, ha- we have been approached by pharma. We've had some conversations with, obviously, push adv- advice from different investors, and that tends to vary uh, substantially depending on who you're talking to. Around right. doing doing collaborations based on the, the the platform element or some of the early data we've developed, et cetera, and we have been quite he- resistant to that because we think the most powerful thing we can do as a small company right now is to generate target evidence on our most promising lead candidates, and ultimately build a portfolio of therapeutics. There's a lot more value in creating drugs than there is in in selling data, so that's been very much the focus. But now we're now that we're starting to build that portfolio, we are having a lot of conversations around which do we trade on, which do we take on ourselves. I think the simple philosophy is anything that we can envision a very tractable clinical program that we as a small company can run in an efficient way, we will want to push forward 
But ultimately, as we look towards moving into later stage, large indication sets that it costs hundreds of millions of dollars to run trials, we will likely be reliant on, on the larger pharmaceutical partners. And at a high level, that's the guiding thesis. But of course, we will be opportunistic about any uh, additional ways that we could we could partner up programs earlier in our development. And we're definitely exploring collaborations and kicking off a few about technologies we can bring in-house as well that augment our programs, such that when we um, when we really start to, to, to interact with larger pharmaceutical partners, we've got a very solid IP base and a very solid um, data sets around it. But Quinn, please uh, please jump in. Yeah, no, dude, I think you summarized it very nicely there, saying that, you know, our focus is on what really augments what we do. And, you know, right now, a lot of our focus is on technology partnerships that are augmenting what we do, you know, in terms of targeting other cell types, thinking about other variations on oligo modalities. Uh, and, you know, over time, that's going to shift towards which uh, sort of pharma partnerships truly augment what we do. And at the end of the day, you're right, it's going to be those clinical trials that we just cannot do on our own. In some early days, though, you talked about Okrabio as a tech bio company, not a biotech company. But it sounds like I'm hearing a little bit more of a shift to a biotech company. Or are you still very firmly rooted in the tech bio? Well, I mean, I guess those those are terms. Using your words are, against you, come on. Yeah, I know. I love it. I love it. Good, good pressure here. Um, well, I, I define tech bio. I guess I, I think maybe I was using the the term incorrectly. I think of us as a tech bio company still philosophically. I guess I would say oh, we we, we do a lot of technology development, as Quinn alluded to. We we built a lot of interesting algorithms. A lot we use a lot of different technologies for the spatial sequencing work we do. We we bring in house and use technology to inform our drug discovery process. That we we think of ourselves as a big data biopharma, and half our team are computationalists. Half of them are in the wet lab. We're we're not just in licensing IP from a university and putting it through a validation program. We're very much using these advances in computation, genomics, different sequencing techniques to understand biology and ultimately turn that into better medicines for patients. So that's what I mean when I say tech bio. But I guess I, I guess tech bio has an association with a with a business model that it, that I didn't describe. So um so that, that that might be the pushback, which is fair. But Quinn, I, I think we've played with the idea of tech bio. I think I liked it more than you did when I first when we first started saying it. But uh, <laughs> I think you definitely did. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, I completely celebrate the idea that we need to, we need to move away from that. You know, biotech being one thing, and, and the, the the old school thinking is developing an asset that we've spun out of a university group or whatever the case may be. And you know, biotech is so rich now, both computationally and technology wise. Um, and and you know, I hope that we reflect some of that. And I, you, are we tech bio? I mean, I. <laughs> what the other thing that we debate a lot is this definition of sort of deep tech, you know, mm -hmm. uh, in the biospace. And people talk about deep tech and companies that might be deep tech in the biotech space, focusing on a high scientific risk with long-term outcomes. You know, for me, that, that I mean, again, that's fantastic. To me, that just sounds like good old-fashioned science, quite frankly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I think Ochre is a great, wonderful example of pulling together these kind of seemingly disparate pieces that when they fit together, they really create, and I'm, and I'm going to um, avoid using the, the um, capital S word, but they do create something that is more than some other parts. So let's talk about how you start building the people around that. And, you know, you talked about, you know, you're always, always hiring, always pulling in um, kind of the, uh, trying to bring in the right people you're you're leading this massive r&d effort across what is it three labs if um you know wet dry wet lab dry lab and then the um, lab in, in thailand is that correct um how is it coordinating multiple labs across uh, the world during um the pandemic Quinn, i'll let you take that one <laughs> with much difficulty i can tell you <laughs> Um, it is, it is, I mean, it's really, really challenging, you know, and every time, every time I've done this, I think I've learned everything I need to. And every time I'm humbled and sort of have to relearn a lot of lessons on uh, how to shape teams and how to sort of really bring this together. Um, I think, I think Jack and I, I mean, just to speak to the very dispersed teams, I think Jack and I have learned to do that in, in our past lives. So uh, I would argue we, we possibly uh, a little bit more comfortable that with most people. I think, I think the thing that's just, um, it's just, it's just really, really challenging is, is finding the right mix of people, you know, the right phenotypes 
and knowing when to make the tough decisions on, you know, hey, this isn't working. Uh, you know, we we really need to hit those goals. And I truly appreciate what you're doing here, but that's not the fit for us right now. Um, and it's getting that going as a young company is is a lot. I mean, Jack and I talk about this a lot, um, and it's something we're truly passionate about because um, at the end of the day, you you know you do expect a lot of people. They take personal risk in you as a company. Uh, you know, and particularly in the European setting, there's far less market fluidity than you might find in the East Coast and West Coast uh, markets. They do take a big risk in you, um, and you do expect the world from them. I, I say it all the time. I've said it in multiple meetings today that Jack and I, I expect, I expect our scientists to walk on water, but then in return, what is it we do for them, and how do we shape them as individuals and make for great teams? Um, and I'll segue that one to Jack on <laughs> on ideas. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think we, we do think quite carefully about how to create an environment, a learning environment for people. We spend a lot of time with individuals working through personal development programs and setting up the right kind of frameworks for them to get to where they want to be in, in, in their career. We spend a lot of time on culture and thinking about the, the organization and the the, find, the founding laws we set for ourselves. We, we, I, I love this. Uh, you know, people talk a lot about culture and, and, and what what words they associate with it, et cetera. When we were kicking off, I think it was one of the first meetings Quinn and I had back uh, back in a couple of years ago now, but uh, the three laws we set ourselves as a company, which we try to aspire to when we bring people in and when we, when we uh, grow the organization are, the first is, is Clark's law, which is any technology significantly advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Mm-hmm. So we really need to strive for, for high science, for ambitious science, for science that's going to really make a big impact on the world and humanity. Second law is Murphy's law. So as an Irishman, I want to my heart. What, what, what can go wrong will go wrong. It's never an easy, uh, never an easy journey, uh, especially when you're building something from zero, blank page type stuff. You know, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You got to be ready to, to own up to it and to take it on the chin and keep moving. And, and that's very much a part of the culture here. Resilience is, is something we try for. And then the last one is Wheaton's Law. And we saw this from Big Bang Theory. <laughs> so Wheaton's Law, very simply, just don't be a dick. Um, and we try to aspire to that with, with folks we bring in uh, about kindness and, and making sure we, we create an environment that people thrive in and can really reach their their goals as, as people as well. So um, anyway, I'll pause there. No, that's awesome. And one of my closing questions was going to be, how do you resolve conflict as a team? But your third law helps out quite a bit there. But <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I did aspire to that. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Um, so Ochre raised a seed round uh, earlier this spring, summer. What's next for uh, for Ochre? What are your next near-term milestones and um, fundraising events, things like that? Yeah, maybe I can take that. And Quinn, please jump in as, a, as I finish that off. So to date, we've kind of at a high level. We've built one of the largest general atlases of the human liver, use it to uncover a host of novel targets. We've just started seeing the fruits of our validation efforts in our Oxford lab now and are starting to spin out a couple of really interesting potential drug candidates that are moving into our perfusion model as we speak. I think one of them's on an overnight flight to UCSF right now to the transplant mm-hmm. surgeons over there. Um, and we're really scaling up the, the foundations we've now set. So we are in five transplant centers. We're going to be in 10 by the start of next year. We're scaling up our internal programs. We're valid or testing more targets and validating more work in, in Oxford. And we're also now increasingly looking beyond the first program in transplant into more advanced liver disease in, in cirrhosis. And that's very much a focus for the Taiwan lab. They're doing a lot of analysis of the the roles multiple different cell types play in late stage liver disease using things like single cell sequencing, et cetera. And we're also starting pilot programs with collaborators around delivery mechanisms to get RNA into new cell types and new RNA modalities that may be more applicable than what we've been uh, kind of starting off with in Galnac siRNA, such that we can build this diversified portfolio of therapeutic programs always in liver, at least for the time being, <laughs> but across across the uh, the spectrum of liver disease uh, and move those closer to the clinic in, in somewhat of a simultaneous fashion. I guess if, I, if I'm if i thinking about innovation in biotech business models, um, and I, I say I say we're a tech bio, we're not, we're not a platform in the sense that we don't sell off our, our assets or sell off our, our, our kind of core technologies. But what we do think about is diversification in, in, in portfolio strategy. And I guess you could analogize a little bit of that to what Roy Vand and Bridge Bio and some of these folks have done. We we, we kind of watch those with um with great uh, great interest and are thinking about how we build a very diversified portfolio across multiple indications of the liver using our tech 
tech bio approach to drug discovery, um, such that when we get to the clinic, we, we have a, a de-risked uh, program. We don't have that binary outcome that plagues a lot of biotech with uh, your first program kills or, or, or sends the company into, into orbit. And we, we really want to hit that with a kind of diversified preclinical programs uh, and move, move into clinical development uh, fairly soon after in, in a wider set of diseases. You need enough... Um, uh, you need multiple shots on goal, and then you need enough um, kind of wood behind the arrow to actually make them strike when you, what you're trying to hit. Well, yeah, I think that's right. I think I think for us especially, because we have this kind of unique initial indication that's quite near term and quite tractable for us to to get to um, as a small company in transplant. And, and really, because that's such a big moment for the company, we want to be able to to hit the ground running with multiple things in uh, multiple irons in the fire very soon after so such that when when or hopefully that that will be successful and we can really scale up uh, in a meaningful way multiple different um different programs simultaneously thereafter traditionally what is the difference in drug development timelines for a um you know traditional therapeutic as compared to going after this kind of transplant uh explant indications how much faster are you able to go Quinn, do you want to take that one or like? <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, I think there are two answers to that. I mean, technologically, it is much faster. So it, it, if you compare uh, maybe the first seven years before you get to clinic and then another sort of multiple years after that, leading you to sort of 12 to 15 years for traditional development, uh, a lot of what we've done is shrunk those first seven years. Um, and that's because of RNA and that's because of perfusing human livers uh you know i think the interesting thing for us now is how do we shrink the other years in terms of clinical development and uh you know rna vaccines have again shown very nicely how when 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 the will is there and the money is there you can do things very quickly um also i think something we've learned from a lot of the work that's happened with COVID over the last year is the power of platform trials you know being able to test out lots of leads in a single trial, in a shifting trial. And for us, we hope that is going to be a big way to speed things up. Will that be the approach in the X-Plans? Hopefully, yes. So you'll do basket trials? That, there you go. Well, what we're going to do, we will have multiple arms um, and we'll do multiple assessments at certain time points and then drop the arms that aren't performing. Adaptive design. Excellent. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, how, how many targets do you think you'll go into uh, initially or, or, or candidates do you think you'll take into some of these first uh, basket trials? Uh, that depends on how well the Series B goes. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. Duly noted. <laughs> uh, is the honest answer. <laughs> so, Jack, you alluded to it. I have to beg the question. Livers are but one internal organ. Uh, they are a Sounds like a rich and fertile ground for drug discovery, um, but they are not the only organ in the human body. What others uh, potentially does ochre uh, potend to uh, go after on the color wheel? I, I I know I alluded to this, and I regret it now because we are <laughs> we are so uh, far away from even beginning to think about about addition. Uh, There's just so much work for us to do in in liver first. Um, I mean, one thing to say, the liver is the, the, the kind of brain of the me metabolic engine, if you will. There's a lot that happens in the liver, a lot of diabetes drugs or liver drugs, the cholesterol drugs or liver drugs. You know, if you can find new pathways to modulate in the liver, you can have a, a much broader uh, effect on human systemic disease um, beyond what we described in cirrhosis and, and fatty liver and transplant. So the, the, that's one element, one, one angle we could begin to focus on later stage. Some of the other things we're thinking about um, around some of the biologies we're looking at in terms of macro, liver macrophage biology could have relevance to other indications of other organs. Uh, ischemia is a big problem in liver transplant, similarly in, in, in heart attacks, et cetera. And then I guess maybe the last really far off thing I'm going to regret saying now, and I, I don't want anyone to take this too seriously, but it is the, the kind of potential way down the line type of thing is that about a big part of our thesis as a company is we use advanced genomics to find new targets, but then can validate them at an incredibly fast pace in extremely human relevant organs, being the human organ itself. 
and you can perfuse multiple other organ types. The, the liver is not the only organ that can be perfused, but of course, every uh, organ that can be perfused, namely kidneys, hearts, and lungs, has its own intricacies and its own, uh, you know, things that we would need to do a lot of work on and probably aren't very well positioned to at this point. We have a lot of liver biology expertise on the on the, on the team right now and that um, doesn't necessarily easily translate to something like the kidney, let's say. But... Sure. Uh, nevertheless, I uh, I was forced to ask answer that question because of my uh, earlier comment, which I uh, should have retracted. But uh, that's why uh, my oh, honest answer. That's okay. Uh, I appreciate you taking a, a slight stab at it. Uh, so, in in closing, I wanted to to, to kind of ask a few personal questions um, for kind of each of you. Feel free, uh, whoever wants to to kind of strike first. How do when when you're faced with a very difficult problem, regardless of what it is? What's the first thing you do? Oh, Jack, you're going to have to go first on that one. <laughs> I was def defaulting. Uh, okay. Hardest problem. What's the very first thing you do? I, I One of the things I've actually learned from Quinn, and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't big on this when I, uh, a couple of years ago, but I, I just write because I, I found that writing really helps me synthesize my thoughts. My brain, I think, is naturally t has an inclination to, kind of go in different directions and, and kind of come up with lots of lots of different things. So I'll, I'll try and write down everything that comes into mind initially, which oftentimes is a, a whole host of different kind of wild ideas related to the issue I'm faced with. And then I try to synthesize that into something that's actionable and coherent and structured. And that helps me kind of come to a framework to help inform the decision. Um, that's, and I think I've already learned that from Quint because he, 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 uh, he does a lot of, um, yeah, he's very thoughtful in his, is writing, which I I, I am, have been less so. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. I can see that being a fantastic strategy with um, kind of how once you get rolling, things just start coming a thousand miles an hour. So if you can just do stream of consciousness and get it on the page, that'd be a phenomenal strategy for you. Absolutely. No, I mean, I'm Jack, I'm actually just going to extrapolate from there. I think, I think one of the things that uh, we, I think we learn very quickly as a pair, and hopefully this is spilling out into the leadership within the company, is I think we've learned this, this, this skill of oscillating between uh, encouraging noise in the thinking process, uh, and then bringing it back down. You know, for me, mm. I've, People hear me. I, this is some. This is a topic I obsess about all the time. Is the right level of noise because there can be too much noise. You know, if there are too many mutations, we're all melt down. But just the right level of mutation makes us evolve as a species. The same in terms of our thinking and and how we do things. Um, you know, and you can be you can be have all the expertise as you want. Uh, inevitably, the big changes are going to be things you never saw coming, and so you have to have that noise. And that's something that we I think we do practice quite a lot. It brings to mind one of my favorite uh, kind of drug development um, sayings, and it's actually pretty appropriate for um, the liver. Uh, it's that the, the only difference between a, um, a drug and a poison is the dose. There you go. It's it's finding that right level of noise. And uh, who knows? Let's see. Let's let's first get something to click before we celebrate. <laughs> but um, it is something I love about the team that we're building and sort of getting that right level of thinking out the box, but also bringing it back down to this has to happen now as scientific entrepreneurs um when you're in the trenches what's a kind of piece of advice or book or just source of inspiration that you guys like to uh, to to resort to uh, other than tree houses yeah <laughs> jack i'll let you start with this one again <laughs> you're throwing me all the hard ones uh, okay. i i was uh, again I'll, I'll, my rambling mind went straight to this i mean this is an interesting one for us but the straight to the story of al nylum we, ha we had a great um a great speaker in not too long ago rachel myers who was former cso one of the kind of original original folks at al nylum and i just think their journey is is such an inspiring one and such a quintessential biotech story about you know a lot of excitement around the the approach the platform which obviously has a lot of relevance to us as we've gotten started as a company but equally then there's kind of just rock wall of or this age of disillusionment i guess is the term where people just didn't believe rna was rni was ever going to get anywhere and they had this really tough and i mean imagine trying to motivate a team when the whole industry is thinking this is a, a waste of everyone's time you know and i think that as a and the culture you need to have and must have been so strong to get people through that that age of disillusionment or that difficult time for the organization, and then ultimately to kind of uh, come out, rise from the ashes like a phoenix, and become what is the the, 
they're just hugely impactful and amazing and inspiring company that is on island i just think that story of play, plays to that resilience that murphy's law piece i guess to an extent but um it also plays to this idea of uh, having a prepared mind and when the when the iron is hot strike and raising the capital when you can so that you can sustain and have the ability to really um do the work that's needed to get to, to something that's a massive value inflection and a massive just societal value creation uh, in the form of what, what I think was just recently approved in, in the UK here in Clizerin, which I think was a really inspiring mm-hmm. story as a therapeutic um, product. But anyway, that was uh, something I think is a, is a great testament for folks who are in, in no, the biotech space. a great example of persistence and having multiple shots on goal to keep the everything going and still alive. Um, yeah. Quinn, yeah. how about you? Oh, I have to agree with Jack. That's one of our, I think we're so inspired by how an island have done things. I think um, <laughs> the answer I always give when I'm, I'm asked about advice is don't take advice. Um, <laughs> it's uh, And the reason I say that is, you know, I find in this space, um, a lot of people, you know, everybody has advice. Ask a hundred people for bits of advice and get a thousand bits of advice. Um, and it's so difficult often to tease apart what is very specific to their situation or what they're giving you as advice, but is basically something that happened despite uh, their success. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's always, you know, when speaking to the guys on the team and speaking to people who ask for advice, I say, just be very very careful of advice. Know if this is the advice that works for you. You know, our one of our investors, our, one of our lead investors, uh, you know, has this. That you know, they have that as a philosophy that venture capitalists should be very careful about telling the companies they invest in what to do. And it's it's and for me, it's that same thing. You know, it's um it, again, it's a very careful dance. Yeah, the entrepreneur's role, I guess, is to take um. To you know, take take hear things out, and then ultimately make the the final decision based on their intimate knowledge of the situation, and and being careful. I think you can oftentimes listen too much to folks, and it's they may not have the same level of background knowledge on your company as you do. So finding all that, getting all that information, then triaging what's most useful, and then making the decision um, as the leader of the organization. Amen. Here, here. Well, this has just been a fantastically fun discussion. I loved hearing about Okrabio. Um, Quinn, your research is uh, fantastic. Uh, Jack, I, I deeply respect you um, kind of chasing Quinn down and, and working with him and, and finding common ground to create this very, very fascinating uh, startup. I wish you guys all the best. Thanks, Justin. Thank you so much, Justin. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. Thanks, guys.